This is the No Nonsense Agile Podcast. Each week we have in-depth conversations with experts in agile product development and technology leadership. Our guests share their insights and recommendations on how you can build great teams that produce high-value digital products and services. Subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast app. Welcome to the No Nonsense Agile Podcast. I'm Shane Gibson. And I'm Murray Robinson. And I'm Jonathan Hall. Hi, Jonathan. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. So we want to talk about an article you've written called CD Without CI. But before we do that, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and experience? Absolutely. So I am a long-time software developer. I was a full-stack software developer before that was a thing. I was installing servers, running cables to them, writing the software that ran on those servers, writing start procedures in Postgres and back-end Perl code, and the front-end JavaScript code even before jQuery was known. So I think full-stack pretty well describes that. And eventually, as our company grew and we had people take over some of the operational stuff. We called them DevOps, although looking back, it wasn't really DevOps, it was just ops, but they provided VMs for us and stuff like that. So I stopped running server cables and just focused on writing software. We hired a front-end developer, so I became the de facto back-end guy. And I've been comfortable in that space ever since, doing back-end, although with a heavy emphasis on infrastructure. I think what a lot of people would call a DevOps developer, if you want to abuse terms a little bit. I do mostly Go development in the last several years, and a lot of automation, CICD, setting up tools to make developers more efficient and effective, and leading teams, mentoring to help people learn how to do these things that I've learned over the last 15, 20 years. So what sort of companies do you work for? I definitely prefer smaller companies. In the last three or four years, I've worked heavily with fintechs, startups. Not per se because I have some big dream to work in a fintech, but that's who's been hiring where I happen to live. I worked for Booking.com for a while, and they're easily the largest company I've worked for. But while I was there, I tried to introduce GitLab. We were using Git at Booking.com, headless Git, so command line everything. And I thought it would be helpful if we could do some sort of code review. We were trying to do code reviews with certain third-party tools. I thought GitLab would be great. It's open source. It's, there's a free version available. So I implemented GitLab as a test project during a hackathon. It got minimal traction. I ended up leaving the company. I just felt like things were going too slow. Two years later, I had former colleagues say, Jonathan, thanks so much for introducing GitLab. It's changed our lives. <laughs> <laughs> the fact that I could plant a seed and then three years later start to reap benefits, that's just a time scale I'm not comfortable working at. I like to see results in six months or less if possible. So uh, I like the smaller companies for that reason. Okay. So continuous delivery. We've talked to Dave Farley and Brian Finster about it, and both of them talked a lot about automation and yes. said, a continuous delivery requires that you automate all of your tests right. and all, all of your build and deployments. But you're talking about CD without CI. So what is it? What are you talking about? Yeah. So I probably would retitle it if I were to rewrite it again. But let's talk about the problem I'm trying to solve with this approach. And then we can talk about the approach. A lot of people in these companies will tell me, that we can't do CD here. We can't do continuous delivery or continuous deployment because we don't have automation in place yet. We're still reliant on manual QA. We're reliant on all these manual processes. 
let's work on automating these processes. And then once we're ready, we'll flip that switch and go to CD. And what I've just noticed, nobody's ever ready. If you try to dedicate, say, 10% of your time to writing tests for existing code, it's a losing game. You can never catch up. You'll never have the test coverage that makes you comfortable or confident to switch over to continuous deployment. So I flipped that around and I was like, what if we start at the other end of the pipeline? What if we start at the delivery end rather than at the integration end? And we start automating things there. And then we can use that as a framework to build the rest of our automation. And from there, we can start to fill in the automated testing, potentially replacing manual QA. I think that's a great goal, but not everybody's comfortable with that. So I don't always talk about that when I'm talking to clients because they're afraid of replacing their manual QA. So my objective with this approach is let's get the end in sight. Let's get some light at the end of the tunnel so we can see the objective we're trying to achieve, which is safe, regular automated deployments. And then we can fill in the rest and use that as a guiding principle to fill in the missing pieces. That's the high-level overview. Yeah, well, I've certainly experienced the same thing that you have. I'm always talking about continuous delivery and test automation, build automation with people. And yet it's frequently very difficult to get them to do it because they just mm -hmm. don't have a history of it. The developers and testers don't know how to do it. And it seems like a lot of work that people don't want to do. One time a few years ago with Emphasis, I tried to get them to do it. And so they hired a separate team to write the automated tests after the development had oh, been no. done. And then it was never updated. So it was completely useless. So I agree with you. It's quite hard to get people to do it. So can you take us through that? How would you start? What would you do first? And then how would you work your way up? So first thing I do is I try to take stock of the current situation. I advise people to make a list of everything that happens between the developer committing code, whether they're using GitFlow and committing to a development branch or something like that, or maybe they're using some sort of trunk-based development or something where they're committing directly to trunk, whatever the case. From the time the developer hits commit until that code is in front of a live customer, what happens? What's that process? And how long does it take? The shortest I've seen typically is two to three weeks. There's usually manual QA happening there, somebody writing up release notes or documentation. Maybe a PO signs off on the feature being, quote, complete or whatever. My goal is to formalize that first. And let's make, the, make sure that, that stuff happens. First, that we all agree what it is. And then let's try to codify that before the merge button is pressed. So if you have manual QA happening, let's say that takes three days. Is there any way we can do that manual QA before we hit that merge button? And usually it's not that hard. The hardest part is convincing people to think about the problem differently. It's not a technical problem. Now, there are some technical nuances that come up. If you have a large team and you only have one staging environment, how do you test all those features simultaneously on one staging environment? That's a problem to be solved, but it's a solved problem. It's not rocket science. It's just a matter mainly of communication. So the goal is to find all those processes, document them, put them in a template, and make it a check mark for each item. So the first step isn't to automate anything at all. It's to document what you're already doing. And then, as you can, if any of those things can be automated, do that. Stop waiting on manual processes. But more important for this process, just move that into your definition of done and do as much of that as possible before that merge button is pressed. That's the first step. Yeah. Is this the typical deployment pipeline that you're talking about in your article? So pull requests, merge to dev, goes to QA, merge to staging, acceptance testing, merge to mainline, docs deploy. So we're talking about making sure that that's working properly first. 
Right. The illustration you see in the article was based on my experience at an e-commerce company I was working at several years ago. But I think it's typical, especially using GitFlow. Not every company has exactly the same list of steps or in the same order, but it's fairly typical. So what percentage of organizations or teams you work with have manual QA teams? I would say close to 100% either have it or think they should have it. Sometimes I start early enough and they're like, we're still getting ready to hire our first QA. And I think that's going to get them into the big leagues somehow. So that intrigues me because there's been an agile mantra of bring testing into the team and then mentor and coach the rest of the team on how to do those mm. things that you do. Figure out how to automate things, get the developers to build the happy path tests, and then you start looking at the edge cases. And we've been talking about that for years, but it sounds like there's a really small amount that have got to that nirvana of bringing automated testing and removing that manual task. I agree. A common attitude I see is that automated testing is great, but we're not there yet or we're not big enough for that yet. So we're going to keep doing manual testing. There's this idea that, yeah, if you're Google, then yes, automation's great, but we're not Google. We're still only have six developers or whatever. That's part of my mission is to change that mentality. You can have big tech success on a small tech budget. You don't need to wait to start doing the right practices. You can do them now. Yeah. My experience consulting at in the agile space, Shane, over the last 15 years is that every company I go to has manual testing and it's often separated from development. So the first thing I'm doing is bringing them together in the same team. There have been a couple of companies in the last five years that do have quite a lot of test automation, but the test automation has always happened at the end. Mm -hmm. It's not happening during development. It's happening as part of developing release packages and right. things like that. And then sometimes it's maintained and sometimes it's not. So it gets put in place as like a final gate. I definitely see the same pattern. Yeah. Yeah. So it's pretty terrible. And I'm still hearing this thing of you can't have developers test their own code because you need an independent group to look at it because developers won't take care or they'll just test yeah. their own assumptions. Nonsense. <laughs> I agree. It is very much about justifying the test empire for the test manager. Right. It only makes sense to have a separate test team when you have a poor quality development team, as you sometimes get with outsourced offshore teams. But even then, the real answer is just to get some better developers. Yeah. There's a place for testing and there's a place for manual testing. Yeah, it's just that it shouldn't testing. be in that delivery pipeline. That, that's the wrong place for it. Who, who wants to hire a plumber who doesn't test the toilet he just installed before he leaves? That, that's just ridiculous. In, in no other industry would you trust a professional to do their job and not test it before they send you a bill. That's just nonsense. Why, why would developers be different? We're supposed to be the smartest people on the planet. Well, why are we so dumb? That's a little unfair, Jonathan, because developers do test their own code, but they just don't test it thoroughly enough normally and i think continuous delivery is saying if we get people who are really good at testing and people who are really good at development together and we get them to overlap then you know you can get some magic that happens you can automate your tests as you go but it's still uncommon in my experience it depends on the culture of the organization so if the developers are empowered to get the job done and iterate their ways of working, then good developers will start to automate a manual test. They'll write code to test their code. But if they're in a feature factory where every minute they work is watched by somebody else and they're micromanaged, they're never enabled or allowed to actually go and automate their work. 
they just get told to do that neat feature and pump it out. So often the culture of the organization is a constraint to some developers for doing what they know is something that's valuable. I want to modify what I said before because I realized that there's a lot of unit testing being done by developers. About 10 years ago, a lot of unit testing came in and that gets run before a build, but that doesn't actually catch that many defects, I find. Yeah, it catches the micro defects, but it's really the integration test, whether it's manual or automated, that catches the big problems. So I have a few things to say on those topics. The first is I often see teams where they are doing practically zero unit testing also. That's a problem to solve that doesn't require manual or automated QA at all. It just requires good developer practice. Second, I, I do believe that you can catch a lot of bugs with unit tests if you do the unit testing well. There's a lot of bad unit tests out there. Only test the happy path, for example, or just don't think about a lot of the things. Uh, an interesting finding came out of the book Accelerate a few years ago. One key finding was that teams that don't have developers writing their own tests do not see better business outcomes. If I write some code or a feature, and then someone else, whether it's QA or a different development team or whatever, writes the tests, those tests may as well not exist from the standpoint of business outcomes. I use an analogy to explain why I think this makes sense. And that is when I cook in my kitchen for my wife and I leave a disastrous mess around, my wife has two choices. She can either tell me to clean up the mess or she can come back after the dinner and clean up the mess herself. When I'm forced to clean up the mess myself, I'm less likely to make that sort of mess again in the future because I'm thinking about it. I don't like having to clean up my mess, so I'm going to try to make a smaller mess the next time. Even subconsciously, I'm probably thinking about that process the next time I'm preparing a meal, and I'm less likely to use six spoons instead of one or whatever. I think if we apply the same principle and have developers write their own tests and, of course, also fix their own bugs, they're less likely to make those same mistakes in the future. It makes sense to me intuitively. I don't know if that holds up to the science because I don't think that science has been done yet with regard to testing. We do know, or, or at least we have strong evidence that if developers aren't writing their own tests, you might as well have those QA people playing Doom all day for the amount of business value it provides. Okay. So imagine you're going into a company, they haven't automated much. You talked about defining your process. So how do you increase the quality and get them on the path? How would you see Dev and Test working together? I think there's two parts to this answer. First is, what does the ideal scenario look like with Dev and Test? And in, in my view, the ideal scenario where we're trying to go doesn't necessarily have dev and test quote on the same team. It might, although that's not the important feature. The important feature is what is test or what are QA doing and what is dev doing? And so I think the simplest way to describe my ideal scenario is that QA testers, manual QA testers should not be doing regression testing. They should be doing exploratory testing. You have QAs exploring the system to find what's unintuitive what's broken, this is valuable. And this is stuff that automated tests cannot do. On the other hand, if you have your manual QA people just reading a script of these are the 16 steps, run these 16 steps, why wouldn't you automate that? That's the sort of thing computers are good at. They do it better than humans do because they don't make mistakes. They don't forget step 12. So if you have your manual testers doing manual regression testing, stop. You're doing your product a disservice. You're not getting the quality you need because human testers are unreliable. You're doing your testers a disservice because they're bored. You're doing a developers a disservice because they should be automating those tests. Everybody involved is not getting the best benefit if you have your QA running scripts 
computers do that stuff. Now, there's a huge debate that could be had about whether that should be done in the front end or the back end, unit tests, integration tests, whatever. I think that's a different conversation. But the point is, it should be automated. Have your manual QA people doing what they do well and exploring using their brain and their intuition to find problems that you cannot find with regression tests. In this way, those manual QA people are closer to user research or UX design, which are incredibly valuable and just simply cannot be automated. Yeah. And also, if they're doing that sort of exploratory testing and they find a problem, then you can develop a regression test for it. Absolutely. And you should. I'm an advocate of TDD. The first thing you do when you discover a problem, write that regression test, then fix it. Yeah, I agree. All right. The first thing we're going to do then is get people to automate their regression tests. Yes. And how would you go about doing that? Great question. The first thing I would not do is tell the developers, go back and write tests for all the code you've written. That is a huge waste of time. It's demoralizing and it's even dangerous often. What I do, what I advocate is a working agreement on the team that any new code changes get tests. Whether you write the test first or after, you decide. I'm an advocate for TDD, but a lot of people don't like it. And I understand why. I'm not going to enforce that at the beginning. But if you're, as a developer, you're fixed a bug, make sure there's a test that proves that bug has been fixed. Whether you write it first or second, doesn't matter. If you add a new feature, a new drop down to a menu, add a test to make sure that drop down works as expected. If you apply this rule of all new changes get tests at the time they're written, and you don't approve that pull request, for example, until the tests are there, then eventually you're going to have all of the important code tested. By important, I don't mean to suggest that the code that's sitting there and not being changed isn't important, but it's not a liability. It's not important in the sense that we know it's working. It's being tested by our users in production already, presumably. So you don't need to go back and refactor it, which is dangerous, to add tests. Just leave it there. Add tests when you change it because you found a bug report in the wild or because you added a new feature. So what about the thousand manual regression tests that the test team does every few months when you're going to do a deployment? Should you hire some sort of low-cost offshore team to automate all those for you based on the old manual scripts? Probably not. What I have done with success in the past is I keep that process in place at first. So again, as I was describing at the beginning, find your manual processes, move them to before that merge happens. And if that manual process includes regression testing by humans, don't change that yet. That's not the first thing to change. So keep doing that manual regression testing. But I would suggest not doing it every three months. Do it every time you merge a feature. But we can't do that because it's going to take two months to do it. I get that exact same pushback all the time. But if you can find a way to do your manual regression testing per feature, a a few magical things start to happen. First, you get feedback on that feature faster rather than waiting three months to discover that the feature is broken. Maybe it still takes three days, but that's better than three months. So you can get your feedback quicker. And maybe the most profound thing that you discover here is you start to see where your actual bottlenecks are in your process. If it takes three months to get through feature-by-feature regression testing, then that's a big sign that you have a problem to solve. And that problem is often glossed over if you batch everything together and test it all at once. And a third one, maybe a little bit more obvious one, is when you do feature-by-feature regression testing, you're testing each feature in isolation. You don't ever have to wonder, wait, was this Bob's feature or Alice's feature that broke this thing? The only change on this branch that I'm testing was Bob's feature, so that means that he broke it. Yeah, I think it makes a lot of sense to automate your regression tests on deltas, on feature by mm-hmm. feature. I've done that as well. I've encouraged the team to build that into their process. So let's say you're doing that. What does your process flow look like? And 
what environments are you using to do this? Because you're not going straight to production here. Generally, no. So every team I've joined have a production environment. They usually have at least one, sometimes two, test or staging environments. And this is usually where QA happens. So code gets merged to this, let's call it staging environment. Manual QA happens there for the course of a few weeks, and then it gets promoted to development or to production. So what I usually propose as a first step is to break the chain between development stage and production. So that stage environment is a dead end. So you can push to stage anytime you want. But every time you do, or almost every time, it's going to be a force push. It's going to overwrite whatever's there. So you've created a feature branch. You're working on feature X. You're ready for QA to test it. You force push that to the stage environment. So now stage represents only your change. It's whatever's in production plus your change and nothing else. There's no other 16 features there that might conflict. QA does their testing and they report back to you and they tell you everything's good. You're good to go. Then you merge it into production. Or they tell you there's a problem. Then you go back to your feature branch, you're working on your thing. Meanwhile, Alice, working on her feature Y, force pushes to stage. QA does the testing on her feature, and so on. So there's clearly a bottleneck there because stage can only be used by one feature at a time. But this goes back to what I was saying earlier about discovering your bottlenecks. So effectively, you're introducing a forcing function, which is push it to stage. Nobody can move until QA have finished their job. And then the next one's up. So we're looking to focus on how long is it taking to get that work done? And if it becomes a bottleneck, what can we do to reduce the time cycle? By making it a constraint, then all the workarounds we normally do to get it through when we haven't tested it properly or when we've got a feature clash, we can't do it anymore because we've got single line of sight and it stands out like dog's bollocks when the process isn't working. Exactly. It's a technical whip limit of one. Now, maybe your team's big enough that you need two. So you can set up a second staging environment. That's a simple next step and for many teams. Other teams will set up ephemeral environments such that every pull request creates a new temporary environment. If you're using Kubernetes or something, that's fairly simple to do, or ECS or whatever, you can do that too. But having that force whip limit is really nice a lot of times, especially for a small team. It, and it really shows you where your bottlenecks are. The alternative, which everybody does when you have everything batched is, oh, it's time to release. We think it's done testing. You haven't really thoroughly tested everything. So you know, which would you rather have? Slow down your work or only half test stuff? That's the option you're choosing between. And I can see though, that if we carry on working the way we used to work, but introduce this idea of a single line of sight staging, but we do introduce two staging environments. We have to be really careful that we're not forcing our QA team to time slice across the two staging environments, because we're not actually fixing the problem then. We now have a work and limit progress of a whip constraint of two, but a yeah. team of one. And so we haven't actually sure. fixed the problem. Let me describe the approach I see Agile teams use a lot, and then you tell me what's wrong with it. They're working on a project. They're doing a bunch of things together that they expect to release together. Somebody has a small feature to do. They write the code and a unit test at the same time. It goes through a code review with the other devs in their team. Once that's been approved, it gets merged into a team test environment where the testers in the team test it straight away and find problems and then send it back to dev to fix, which may be a couple of days delay. And then as it looks like it's going to be okay, the testers might work with the dev to update some integration tests because 
they're finding bugs and they weren't being picked up in the unit tests. They're probably in integration somewhere. Mm-hmm. So they build their integration test suite together at the same time. And that's sitting more in the team test environment. And then once that's working, it goes to acceptance testing with the product owner who just does their manual stuff and some SMEs do some stuff and they probably find some more issues. And so it goes back to dev and test and they update their, their tests. And then it sits there in this acceptance test environment, waiting for a few more features to come along. So they've got a package mm-hmm. to release. As a product owner, doesn't want to release the features one by one. They want to release them in a package so that they can communicate it. And then as they get ready to do their package, they run all of their automated regression tests again. They do a bit of exploratory testing and then they'll, which hopefully only takes a couple of days and then they release their package. So I see a lot of that from teams that think they're pretty good. What's wrong with that? Several things. What you've described, though, sounds very close to the team I was working on when I wrote this article. We had devs and testers on the same team. The problem I observed on this team I was working on, devs and QAs were on the same team. It was still a delay. And very frequently, the first half of the two-week sprint was devs hacking away while the QA was idle, waiting for something to do. The second half of the sprint was QAs testing like mad while the devs were sitting there idle, waiting for something to do. So that's obviously not very efficient. We haven't actually torn down that silo. We've just localize the silos, if you will. So now we have silos within a team. And that's not really much better than having a separate QA team. Maybe it's a little bit better because maybe the cycle time is days instead of weeks, but it still hasn't fundamentally solved the problem. So what I aim for here is to put QA in a advisory role. I really like the metaphor from the Toyota production system of the U-shaped cell, which is rather than having a long assembly line, that's just a conveyor belt that starts at A and ends at B. You have a a U-shaped conveyor belt that starts at A and ends at A with a workman standing in the middle. And they have all the tools they need in this U-shaped system to get their piece completed, whatever they're doing. They're welding pieces together or they're building a widget, whatever. They have all the tools they need arranged in this U-shape so that they have easy access. They stand in one place and pivot around and do the stuff. They pick up the part from a bin, they do the stuff, and they drop it off in a bin. I like to use this analogy for development. And QA in this analogy becomes one of the tools on this U-shaped bench. So rather than QA being a, a process, the, the traditional view is a developer takes a feature, a story, they do some work, and then they hand it off to QA. QA does some work. They either approve it to go on or they pass it back to the dev. Let's stop doing that and instead make QA an enabling force, a tool that the developers can use, just like many other tools. If you need a database or you need an IDE or whatever, these are the tools a developer uses to get their job done. So the developer works on his feature. When he needs assistance to validate that it's working correctly, he gets help from QA. And that help can come in different forms. It can be that the QA team or person has built a platform that automates Selenium or whatever, and they just teach the dev how to use that. It could be the QA sitting next to them and doing a pairing session where the QA is showing, here's the best way to test this thing. It's a new feature. You don't know how to do this. Here's the way you do that, etc. But QA then becomes an enabler rather than a step along the delivery pipeline. And this eliminates that waiting time where QA is waiting on dev and dev is waiting on QA because it's now a pulling function. The developer says, hey, QA, I need you. And they pull them in to help for something briefly, assuming you have the capacity on your QA team to do that. So QA in this scenario really becomes quality assurance in that they focus on the process. 
rather than actually executing the test at the end. And this gets back to the thing from the Accelerate book that the developers should be writing their own tests. Here, the QA just helps with that. If the QA has expertise that dev doesn't have, they share that expertise, but they don't do the work for the developer. Yeah. So they say things like, how are you going to test this? What's your rainy day path? What's your integration test? Have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? Did you know that there's these other integration tests over here? You exactly. could be using, what data are you using? Yeah. Dev test pairing, I think, be very helpful. Oh, yeah. I tried to implement this once where part of the team was offshore in a developing country for cost reasons, and we had terrible trouble. The offshore team complained a lot and said, just give us detailed test scripts and we'll execute. That's what we like to do. That's what we want to do. Just do that. Mm -hmm. What's your experience with doing this with those sort of offshore Teams. Yeah, my answer is not going to make any, very many people very happy, but don't do that. You're not doing anybody favors. You're not saving the cost you think you're saving. That's pretty close to the scenario actually we had at the company that inspired this post. We had two offshore teams in two different countries, and our QA was in one of those countries. And ultimately, we hired an internal freelance QA automation engineer to help set up a testing platform, which is a six-month project. And then we essentially fired our external QAs. And we prepared for the worst. And everybody was nervous. So we've been doing manual QA for years. What's going to happen? The customers are going to start complaining. Quality is going to go to crap until we figure out this automation thing. We had one permanent internal QA who was going to stick around to do what I just described, be helping hand. And then the, our freelance QA engineer who was there to provide guidance at the beginning. We set up recurring meetings to address all the fallout we knew was going to come when the manual QA team of four was let go. Nothing happened. We had zero incidents. We had zero quality of reports. Nothing happened. We were bored. I've had the same thing happen again at another company more recently. This nuclear disaster we were expecting, it doesn't actually happen. So there's two possibilities I can imagine. One is maybe some quality was lost and it just was lying in wait and it would bite us six months down the road. Or the quality assurance that our QA were doing wasn't actually that valuable. And there's probably a combination of both of those. But it's not this disaster that I expected or that we expected. Maybe that's different if you're in a life and death situation. If you're building self-driving Teslas or something, maybe that's a different scenario. But it hasn't ever bitten me to switch to this new approach and stop depending on manual script executors. So just stop doing that. It's not building a better product. There are far cheaper, more effective ways to build quality to your product than to expect somebody to inspect quality in later. Yeah, I agree with you. That was my experience. <laughs> my recommendation that was we get rid of the <laughs> offshore test team. But they're so cheap, though, Jonathan. Yeah. They are only $200 a day when people locally are $1,000 a day. Surely we're saving tons of money. In an absolute sense, you're saving money versus hiring that $1,000 a day person. But what if you could save all of that money and actually build quality in your product instead? Yeah, but then I won't have as many people on my team reporting to me and I won't justify my salary if your goal is to have more direct reports because it makes you feel powerful then by all means hire manual qa testers but if your goal on the other hand is to produce valuable software then i can help you yeah okay so in the process you're talking about what's the kind of cycle time to get things into production so my goal is to get things to production as quickly as possible that's the goal of continuous delivery or deployment in the first place i have easily gone from 
three to six week cycle times down to 150 deployments a day in the course of three months. How many deployments a day? 150. Now we're talking about a microservices architecture. So I don't mean the entire platform is deployed in a day, but some services upgraded. There are 150 service upgrades in a day on a team of 10 people. It's not hard. Not everybody needs 150 deployments a day, but the point is once you have your continuous delivery in place, why wouldn't you deploy? We could talk about that if we want. There are reasons not to make new features accessible to customers that often. You want to do a, some sort of PR announcement or write the documentation or you want to batch things up. If you're developing mobile apps, you don't, certainly don't want to send 150 updates per day to the Play Store. There are technical and, and business reasons not to expose that many changes to your customers in a day, uh, but there's no reason you can't have your continuous delivery pipeline build that artifact that frequently. I just want to go back to what you said about only one change on staging at a time. If you've got one change on staging and it takes a couple of days to test it, how on earth are you doing 150 changes a day? First, you're not making changes that big. You're doing okay. changes that don't take two days to test. By the time you're doing 150 a day, most of your changes don't need manual QA at all. Maybe it's a simple typo fix. Maybe you've you had an if conditional that was wrong, you reversed it. You don't need a manual QA necessarily to test that. You can test that with the unit test and you're confident. Many of those changes are, are going to be small changes that don't require manual QA. But the, the big one, you know, you, you've added a new feature of some sort that does require some sort of manual QA because you don't have the, the automated integration test yet. Yeah, then those cases do go to maybe two-day-long testing process. Point is that you shouldn't have everything in your pipeline waiting on those big features. You can let your quick things go through quickly and your slow things can go through slowly. Yeah, and every time you start by making your staging a copy of production and then you apply your change to it and mm -hmm. check it before you deploy it to production. Yeah, okay, good. So this is really an implementation path towards Definitely. CD, a step-by-step -step way to getting to CD when CD is too intimidating and too scary exactly. for people. I would never advocate that somebody implement the automated deployments and stop. If you do that, you miss the whole point. That's a starting point. That's to get the end in sight and to help make clear where you need to improve, which parts are the most painful and should be automated first, and things like this. Okay, so if I'm understanding you correctly, the implementation path goes something like this. First, automate your build and deployment process with yeah. your rollbacks and your database backups and recovery and that sort of stuff. Correct. Then start automating your tests on your delta changes that you're mm -hmm. doing. And do those by bringing testing to the front, turning your testers into QA people. And that might require different QA people. We might be talking about QA engineers now, people with a much Definitely. higher level of skill. Yeah. So you might need to get them in. And as you're doing that, then you're transferring the skill to the developers so they can do it themselves, really, just with somebody helping them and advising them. And then as you're making all these Delta changes, you're automating more and more of your regression tests until over a period of time, maybe it'll take you a couple of years, but you'll have everything automated and then you'll be CD at the end of it. Exactly. Yeah. It sounds so easy, doesn't it? It does sound a lot easier as an implementation path than going straight to CD. Every change has to be deployed directly into trunk that's very scary for people who are not there it, it definitely is 
it's uncomfortable and it's scary. And aside from the technical changes, it requires retraining your entire team all at once. All right, everybody, we're going to go through this boot camp about the new way of working, change everything about everything you've done. And now we're going to be better. That's a really hard sell emotionally, technically, everything. It's just very difficult to do that. It's easier if you can pick off the pieces that matter most to your team and your contacts and do those piece by piece. Now, you've been having two conversations with Brian Finster about this. What does he think about this approach? Yeah, we talked about this a bit. He convinced me that the title of my article is wrong. I call it CD without CI, and he has co-authored minimumcd.org, which is a mm -hmm. great resource if you're looking into CD. It outlines the minimum requirements to say that you're doing CD. And according to this website, which I actually agree with, if you're not doing continuous integration, you're not doing CD. And if you're not continuously integrating your code to main, how can you continuously deploy it? So I've renamed this approach to just call it Lean CD. That's the name I'm using these days to describe a lean approach to adopting CD. And I try to be very clear when I'm talking to people about this, that this is not the end goal. If you do this, you can't claim, now we're doing CD, we're done, we can go home now. This is the starting point. All I'm trying to do is change the way we think about the problem so that we can use a different starting point rather than trying to swallow an elephant all at once of automate everything and now we're done. What if we could change the goalposts a little bit, change the order of things so that we have a clear view of what we need to do on our team and so we can start seeing results immediately rather than maybe in three years. Yeah, it feels much more practical to me. What do you think, Shane? Yeah, I like the idea of starting small. Focus on one problem at a time, solve them, solve the next one. Get good at that. The whole ball of the ocean, the whole stop what you're doing. We're going to refactor everything for six months before we start adding value back to our customer. Yeah, that's hard yeah. to justify. Going to yeah. stop the whole team and they're not going to deliver anything out to production for six months because we're going to build a new process. Good luck with that one. And it's pretty ironic that we would have this conversation in the quote agile circles where we're all about doing incremental changes. Why would we suddenly do this in a big bang approach? We still have the term agile transformation. We have the goal sure. is to be agile, not to actually use agile patterns to change the way we work right. to add value. So it's that whole idea that it's a project. It's a, a thing you do once and then you stop doing it. So yeah, I like the idea. It's incremental. I like the idea that we focus on the next problem to solve. We get feedback that, hey, that didn't work. Let's not do that one again. Yeah, that's a good way of rolling it out. What sort of outcomes have you seen as a result of doing this? If I was the business person, the product owner or a project manager or something like that, how would mm -hmm. you persuade me that this was a good return on investment? I've had to do that a number of times, naturally. I was actually recently helping a team that was struggling with slow releases and the product manager wanted to introduce a new stage to our deployment process, make things slower because this would allow a new queue to be yeah. formed. I was like, what if we did a different approach? And she was like, I don't know, but let's try it. We did try it. What was the result? Faster feedback, but we weren't waiting weeks. So here's a really good real world story of a tangible result. This team that I was just describing was having some database performance issues and we needed to fix this. And the current plan was let's replace the database backend with a new database that's faster. And that might be a good long-term approach, but it's certainly not an incremental short-term approach. It was going to be a months-long project to do this. So I wanted to put some profiling into the code base. You know, I was like, what, what, where can we find the slow queries? What's the slow part? What's taking so long? Well, if we had gone through the normal process, it would have taken three weeks to get the metrics from the system and then three more weeks to 
make a change that might help and three more weeks to make the next change and so on and so forth. That was one of the catalysts. That was one of the arguments I made on this team. If we adopt this new approach, we can still spend three weeks testing features if we want to, but at least these features, these changes can be fast-tracked without having to resort to the quote hotfix approach or whatever, a special approach. So we did that. And then within three days, we had the database problem solved. No, not permanently. They still need to refactor the database and replace it with a new one. But the immediate problem, the problem that was causing customers pain was solved in three days because we were able to get those new changes into production quickly and verify them and learn from them and solve customer problems. That's the reason that continuous delivery is so powerful in the first place. It's fun to deploy things fast. But the reason the business cares, the reason we care as an industry is so we can serve customers' needs faster. And you can't. So that's the bottom line. Yeah, and one of the other big benefits of continuous delivery is that we can learn very quickly from our customers what works and what doesn't. Exactly. Yeah, so it's optimizing for learning. All right, shall we go to summaries, Shane? Yeah, I like this idea that you started off with that nobody's ever ready. We should yeah. never wait until it's 100% done. Just ship it early. And I get some feedback and change what doesn't work. So I like that approach and pretty much everything. The other one I like to is this idea of mapping out all the steps first. Observe what you're doing, document what you're doing, treat it as nodes and links so you can see the supply chain of how you work. And once you've done that, you've got a baseline. You've got all the steps that you need and sure as shit, you're going to find some surprises. There's going to be some tasks sure. in there that people don't know are being done. And we'll start questioning, why do we do them? Typically the answer is because that's why we've always done them, but there'll be some surprises in there. There'll be some early wins. Then flag every step that's manual. So once you've done that, then just start figuring out which manual process you can automate next. Don't do them all at once. Just pick them off one by one. So I like that. I like your comment that unit testing is just good development practice. Like you said, I expect my plumber to flush the toilet after he's fixed it. I don't expect to package it up and send it offshore or have a virtual team tell me to flush it for them while they watch on a camera. There are certain things that are part of our definition of done. They are just reasonable practice for us as professionals. And we need to remember that. I love the fact you use food references. I'm a great fan for the whole cooking thing. I like that idea of keep your own kitchen clean. If it's too messy and you go do the scrubbing at the end of it. Yeah. Clean up your own mess. I like the other idea that QA skills are still needed for the tests that require human exploration. There are still things that we can't automate and we still need humans to do that. So let's let them do that. They shouldn't be focused on the Excel run sheet of click here, tick here. We can automate those and we should over time. I like the other point you made about when we're starting out, don't force your dev team to go back and retrofit tests to every piece of code that they or somebody else wrote over the last 10 years, never going to happen, never going to be finished, low value, piss them off, make an unhappy team. They're not going to start adopting automated tests if you make them go do that drossy work at the beginning. You fix a bug, you write a test, yeah, and you'll get coverage of the important things over time. And I like that idea of feature by feature testing. So break it down to small chunks and the forcing function you talked about that it gets put up and if it gets passed or declined. And now we've got a bottleneck. Now we've got focus on getting that process automated or faster because we've got a blocker and it's a visible blocker. So everybody's going to work to unblock it. And I'm a great fan of the idea of 
QA as coaches, bringing those constrained set of skills and to coach the rest of the team, how to do what they do, and then look for those edge cases and automation. So yeah, they're an enabler, not a step in the process is the word you used. And so I think that's a good way of describing what that role becomes in a self-organizing, self-sufficient team. So that was me. Murray, what do you got? I think continuous delivery is really scary for most organizations. It assumes a really high level of technical skill and capability and that you've fully automated everything and you've fully automated all the time. And even organizations that would say that they're agile are nearly always a million miles away from that. It's probably only the really good organizations that are there. So how do you go from where you are to that place? And I think what you've done is you've laid out a practical path that people can take. We're not going to say that you're going to do manual continuous delivery. What we're doing is we've got an implementation path where you go step by step, automating your build deployment rollback process using all the usual tools. And then you change the role of testing in your team to be a real quality assurance role. And the goal is to move away from separate manual testing, except for exploratory testing, to developers develop automated tests as they code, but ones that the QA people using their experience would say, yeah, this makes a lot of sense. You're testing the happy day path, the rainy day path, the integration problems and UX problems. So the role of QA then is to pair with developers at the beginning and during the process to agree on what sort of tests are needed to be automated and then just to really just to make probably just double check that the developers are doing that because you don't want testers to do manual regression testing so this is our goal here get rid of manual regression testing the only testing that these qa people should be doing is exploratory testing to find unexpected problems or where there's something that's got through that you didn't expect. And then once you've found them, then they can pair with the developers to automate those tests. So I really like the idea of developers and testers pairing together to automate tests. I think that's a really good solution because then they can learn a lot from each other. Now, this may require you to have quite different sort of testers in your team testers who are much more highly skilled that are really good at automation testing and that their role in the team is to help the team develop their own automated testing framework and to do this moving testing to the front. I think if you do that, you will save an enormous amount of time in your development process. Your cycle time will probably be cut in half or more. I think you're going to dramatically improve your effectiveness and efficiency of your team because they're not going to waste a lot of time trying to find bugs because you've automated a lot of them out so the bugs just don't come up a second or a third time after you found them the first time and if you keep doing this you're going to get to the point where everything is automated and you're at cd you don't have to get there straight away we're just going to go through this process automate our deltas focus on changing the role of testers to real quality assurance, not testing, really. And I think that's great. I like the idea of just having one staging environment and having it always be a copy of dev plus the delta of whatever small thing you're going to do. That 
I think places quite a strong limit around how far you go before you deploy something. Mm-hmm. So I like it. It feels to me like a practical path to CD. You're not at CD yet while you're doing that, but you can get to CD by the end and you can get a lot of benefits as you go along the path. That's my feeling about it. Did you want to comment on anything we've said? I think you guys have both summarized pretty well. Of course, there's a lot of room for nuance and questions, which I'm happy to discuss if anybody's interested. I would like to leave maybe with one concluding thought, and that is that 10, 15 years ago, a discussion like this would never have happened. We would not be discussing how to implement CD. We would be discussing what is CD? Is is it even theoretically possible to deploy 10 times a day? Now we all know that it's possible. Now the question has moved to can and should we do it here? And I think we've made huge progress as an industry. Part of that's technological. Computers are faster. Storage is cheaper, et cetera. But it's, it's mostly really a mindset shift. And I'm really glad to live in a time when we can have this level of conversation about what's the best way to implement CD rather than me trying to convince somebody that it actually is possible to deploy 10 times a day if you want to. That's a boring conversation now. So I'm really pleased that the conversation has moved as an industry. And I think we're making great progress and things are only going to get easier and faster. All right, Jonathan, where can people find this article we've been talking about? Yeah, the article's on my website, jhall.io. That's J-H-A-L-L.io. You can find the article there. I'll search for CD without CI. I blog daily, so you can read a lot of stuff I write there. I have a podcast on the website, too, about DevOps for small companies. And feel free to reach out. What's the name of your podcast? Tiny DevOps. Focus on DevOps software delivery practices for small companies. Excellent. All right. Thanks very much for coming on, Jonathan. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. That was the No Nonsense Agile Podcast from Murray Robinson and Shane Gibson. If you'd like help to build great teams that create high-value digital products and services, contact murray at evolve.co. That's evolve with a zero. Thanks for listening.